Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Dr. Michael Warner is Medical Director of Critical Care at Michael Garron Hospital in Toronto. A patient of Dr. Warner's in her 40s has just died of COVID, and her circumstances really point, those circumstances point to what we have heard in the past about essential workers and vaccination. Dr. Warner, thank you very much for making the time for us. And what are the, could you just tell our listeners across the country that about the circumstance which led to your now deceased patient contracting COVID? Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, giving me the forum to share this important story that I'm doing. So with permission from the family. Uh, so my patient, as you mentioned, uh, died yesterday. She was in her mid-40s. Her husband is a factory worker in the Toronto area. This is a, a family of new Canadians. And uh, the factory that he works at had an outbreak of COVID, but that outbreak was not on his shift. You know, He was working, I believe, the night shift, and it was on the, the day shift. So he was told to go to work. And uh, so he went to work because he thought that that would be safe based on what his employer was telling him. Even if he didn't want to go to work, he would not have been granted paid time off to get a COVID test because that's the big gap in our paid sick leave policy. Once you get COVID, most employers will provide two weeks time off. But if you're feeling unwell or if you don't want to go to work to get a test for some other reason, there's no paid time off. Well, he did get COVID uh, with the UK variant and so did his entire shift so did his entire family, including his wife. And uh, his wife was admitted to our hospital. And uh, when she was first admitted, all she needed was oxygen. Two days later, we intubated her. The next day, we proned her. That means she had to lie on her belly, uh, paralyzed and sedated. And then uh, on Friday, um, the team from Toronto General Hospital, a quaternary care center, came to our hospital. We had a total of 17 people working on her for three hours to get her on a heart-lung machine, also known as an ECMO machine. We almost lost her. I've never had a patient so close to dying in my hands, but we were able to save her and transfer her to Toronto General, where she passed away uh, 24 hours later. And uh, in my view, her death uh, is completely preventable. It's heartbreaking to hear this. Absolutely heartbreaking to hear this. And her family um, didn't have an opportunity to speak with her over the last and be with her over the last several days of her life. No, uh, unfortunately, they, they got to hear from me over and over again as I was explaining to them how she was deteriorating. And it would be me calling and, and speaking to her husband, for whom English was not his first language, and having their, their young daughter you know, translate the medical situation of her own mother to her father. And, and I can only tell you, how, I mean, how brave she is and how brave she was. The only way that they could interact with her was through a Zoom meeting where we stand up an iPad in front of her body. She's not able to interact with them because she's sedated and paralyzed. And all they can do is, is speak and pray and, and watch. And they will never see her again. And it's just such a tragedy. Yeah. Dr. Warner, talk to us, please, about... Uh the essential workers in this country and prioritizing them for a vaccine. So there's nothing more important right now in terms of helping Canada and Canadians 
get through wave three than targeting vaccination to the people who are dying from COVID. And it's the same people from wave one and wave two, racialized, marginalized, high exposure risk essential workers, except now they're younger. We vaccinated our long-term care home residents, which was the right decision. We vaccinated, you know, those over 80 in our community. But now those who can limit their exposure risk, and there are lots of people with means in Canada who can, they're not the ones who should be vaccinated, even if they're elderly. While we have limited supply, those who work these high-risk jobs in congruent settings need to be vaccinated because when they get COVID, as demonstrated by the story, it's not just their fam- them that are, is affected, it's their entire family. They often live in apartment buildings, you know, multi-generational homes, and it just rips right through. And the variants are so much more transmissible. You have to bring the hoses to where the fire is, and the fire is in the postal codes that are the least well-off in our major cities. And this situation, given the current reality and the current procedures, can repeat itself time after time after time. So I, you know, I have nine COVID patients in my ICU right now, um, and uh, all of them are either essential workers themselves or related, you know, tangentially to some type of essential work, whether it be a PSW who is taking care of them, whether it's they're a rideshare driver, or they work a checkout counter at a dollar store. You know, these are the people who are getting nailed and through no fault of their own, right? They can't, you can't minimize your exposure risk when you're exposed to people over and over again. And so we need to bring the vaccines to the factories and we need to be doing rapid testing in these factories so that workers, when they go on shift, are put in a position where they're vulnerable. If this does not happen, if this does not take place, if this reality does not quickly take place, what are we facing? So wave three is bad. It's really bad. Uh, I'm I'm really fearful for what's coming because the die is cast, you know, for the next two to four weeks anyway, because uh, the infections are being acquired right now while we have quite a bit of um, liberty, I guess. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but there's lots of interaction happening in Ontario among strangers and indoor unventilated places uh, because all non-essential retail is open, even though we've entered the shutdown zone. So the so it's still transmitting all the time, and you know we're going to exceed 500 COVID ICU patients in Ontario probably Tuesday or Wednesday. We're at 467 today. Uh, I could see us exceeding six or 700 the way things are going unless a true stay-at-home order is implemented. But it's going to be the same people who are going to end up in the ICU and from the same neighborhoods, the same ethnic um, background, uh, with the same jobs as we've seen time and time again. People will hear numbers like 410 uh, patients in ICUs, 500, you said, could be reaching 600. But it's difficult to uh, to look at that number from a greater context or greater number of population base and and, and, and understand what, what that number actually means. What, is, what does it mean? What's going on in your ICU at Michael Garron? Yeah, so, so I think at this point, numbers probably don't mean anything to people because we've heard so many numbers, which is why the opportunity to speak about this patient is so important because it makes it real. But in terms of resources, so... Um, Sorry, I'm just listening to an overhead page because I am actually at work. This is um, the uh, the issues in the hospital is that we don't have enough staff to staff the beds that we have. Uh, so we need to there are beds on paper because the government has invested in ventilators and equipment. Uh, right now, I can't staff additional beds in my ICU today because I don't have nurses available, and that's a, a problem across the system. 
Uh, we're delaying and deferring lots of non-COVID-related care that has such profound costs in other ways to patients. We will have to shut that down, you know, except for emergencies, to be able to deal with what's coming because a COVID patient is also far more intense than the average ICU patient, as demonstrated by the patient story I just told, where 17 of us had to resuscitate her for three hours from two hospitals. Uh, we, we have a minute, uh, Dr. Warner. The, the impact on health care professionals, doctors, nurses, uh, the staff, uh, must be it was just immense. Yeah, I think only when this is over will I fully understand uh, what this has been like. I mean, we're st- I feel more in the middle of this than ever because wave one, we were scared because we didn't know what was coming. Wave two, we kind of knew what it would feel like, and it wasn't as bad as we thought it would be. Wave three is far worse than we expected, and it's going to get much worse than it is now. So uh, we're still in the thick of it. And, uh, you know, this is our job to help people. But, uh, you know, when we're at work, it's COVID. And when we go home, it's COVID because it's COVID for everybody all the time. So I think, you know, if you have a healthcare worker in your circle of friends or family, just check in on them uh, because uh, a lot of people are, are quite worn out. And get it uh, vaccinating the essential workers. As you said, uh, take the fire hose to the fire. The McDonald Laurier Institute has published its latest COVID misery index installment. And I'm quoting directly from the release. Canada remains the worst country among its peers in terms of misery wrought by its ineffective response to the pandemic, particularly when compared to the United States and the UK. And this is according to health statistician Richard Audis. Dr. Sean Watley is a senior fellow of the MacDonald Laurier Institute. He's a former president of the Ontario Medical Association, and he's the author of When Politics Comes Before Patients. Dr. Watley's been a guest on this program before. He's back. Dr. Watley, thank you very much for the time. And can we just get an overview from you what it means when the MLI, the MacDonald Laurier Institute Misery Index, as Canada is doing the worst of any of the countries we consider our peers? And I think that's 15 countries in all. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me back, Roy. So just to be clear, the total misery index ranks Canada 11th out of 15, so a little better than worst place overall. But what the researchers have done is they've taken 16 different measures. These are publicly available data feeds. They clumped them into three categories. They looked at each feed individually. But overall, you can look at it by disease misery. Number two, you could look at it by response misery. And then number three, you can look at it by economic misery. And initially, we weren't at last place in the response misery category. And things in that category are things like uh, stay-at-home orders, border closure, school closures, mask wearing. But vaccination programs fall into that response misery category. So now compared to 15 countries overall, so our 14 peer countries, we now have fallen to last place because we've done so poorly on our vaccination program. So, uh, again, quoting from the release, while some countries, and this covers what you just said, but I just want to repeat it, while some countries have experienced significant declines in their incidents and deaths caused by COVID-19, Canada is facing yet another wave of the virus with too few of the sophisticated tools available to manage the disease. So the sophisticated tools that are available to this country and other countries, we don't have enough of them. That sounds very much to me like your book. Yeah, suspiciously so, doesn't it? Uh, I think what we really wanted to get our handle on here is we, this is, pandemic has killed 2.8 million people around the world. So similar agent killing people around the world, and yet every country has a similar 
toolbox of policy responses. And yet, for some reason, some countries have been able to use those policy responses to protect their citizens, get them back to work, keep them healthy faster than we have, and all doing that with less economic misery. So a smaller change in their GDP, less impact in the, in the form of unemployment, lower borrowing and debt changes compared to the UK and other countries. And so that's what we're looking at. Is there a way that we can learn from better performers? Not much has been said or written about this, uh, this reality. Uh, we hear about, you know, a few million new doses of vaccine coming in on a monthly basis or weekly basis, and that's, of course, very welcome. But when you compare it, and the misery index does, Canada's performance with the United States, for example, where during Joe Biden's first 58 days in office, and many people give Donald Trump credit for this, but never mind assigning credit, in the first 58 days in office for Joe Biden, 100 million Americans were vaccinated, or at least 100 million vaccinations were available, and they're looking at, they're predicting that by April the 30th, so uh, the, the first 100 days of Biden's tenure, uh, there'll be some 200 million vaccines available. Why are we, Dr. Watley, why are we trailing so badly? <laughs> What's going so, on? Seriously. So I, I would love to give you a one-line answer for that. But just to add some, some meat to what you've just said, we currently rank 47th place in the, with respect to vaccinations worldwide. 16 doses of vaccine have been given for every 100 Canadians, whereas in the States, 47 doses have been given for every 100 Americans. Israel has, has done 113 doses. But just to give some real-life context to it, my, my in-laws got trapped in Florida uh, due to the pandemic. You shouldn't feel sad for them. They've actually loved their time down there. But right now, they can walk into any pharmacy they want, no booked appointment, no standing in line, no waiting uh, you know, until the computer says they can go. They can walk in. They have a choice of a number of different vaccines and they go in and get vaccinated. And they're kind of saying, well, do I even need the vaccines? Because we're actually all out at restaurants. So the policy response is so different in other countries. Not only have other countries been able to do a better job of protecting their citizens, but the citizens actually have the ability to get on with their life, to do their work, and not be worried about paying for the economic fallout for the next two decades. Meanwhile, the lockdowns and the severe restrictions continue in Canada. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's doubly troubling because I watched the, uh, the uh, Players' Championship, uh, PGA Championship, a couple of weeks ago being played in Florida. And I saw not one player, not one caddy was wearing a mask. Very few people of the fans. And I didn't have as many fans as they usually do, but there were thousands in attendance. Nobody was wearing a mask. And just the other day, the CDC, if I have this correctly, has indicated that Americans will be able to travel again. Um, and here we are, we're, we're locking down and we're, we're, we're heavily restricting our population from having interaction with one another with the uh, resultant costs that go beyond the financial, that include the emotional. And, and I, is there a light at the end of this tunnel? I'm just babbling here, but I, no, I find this really babbling. disturbing. Yeah, and, and I've heard so many people say the same. And, you know, to your point, Roy, it's not just the frustration that healthy people are feeling. Uh, my heart goes out to all the people that, in, in my own practice, who can't get the care that they need. They're not getting the cancer screening. They're not able to get in for a, a radiologic scan of their lump or their bump. 
um, they're, they're actually, in a number of cases, dying because they go to the hospital too late, they're too scared to go, or they're just not able to get in. So we're not going to have that data for a while yet. We've been focusing on one risk above all else. 300 people die in Ontario every single day, and those aren't dying from COVID. That's pre-COVID. Now, you know, the COVID yeah. deaths run, run in the teens and the 20s. Yeah. And so we need to have thought put to all the other risks that we're facing as well. Well, absolutely. The collateral damage is huge. If you yeah. look at the if you look at the second, uh, you know, people who require attention, we've heard a lot about cancer patients, but the collateral damage of COVID that goes beyond the actual dealing with COVID nineteen, huge. Yeah, and we've had time to prepare for this. Listen, long term care was on desperate straits before COVID. Yeah. Yep. As as we said before, two point five beds per one thousand population in Canada, whereas you have four point seven in Europe. So we've had over a year now to prepare for this, and to be talking about lockdowns at this point is is pretty frustrating. If we look at, um, and I would like to see Canada number 14 out of 15, or as you said earlier, 11 out of 15, then we're, we don't belong there. Mm-hmm. We really should not be there. But the COVID misery index, which is what the MLI is uh, as, as released, it's updated, I'm looking for, reading from the release here, it's updated regularly to track changes in the trajectory of the pandemic. Its findings also reflect, in large part, criticism leveled at the federal government in a recent report by the Auditor General of Canada. Would you speak to that, please? Yes. So the Auditor General report is fascinating. I hope your listeners take the opportunity to check it out. It's available online. And they came out with very strong language against the fact that the risk assessment leading into the pandemic was poorly done. I forget the exact uh, phrase. Perhaps perhaps you have it in in front of you. I believe they said something along the lines of failure. And um, that's just one of a number of other bits of data that's coming out. There's also a Kai-Hai piece that just came out. We can talk about that, too, if you want. Well, absolutely. But let me just read from the, uh, from the release. According to the Auditor General, Canada has a slow and disorganized response to the pandemic, Likewise, the COVID misery index finds that Canada performs worse than most peer countries in terms of controlling the reproduction rate of the virus by failing to employ a more efficient testing regime. And without a quick vaccine response like the U.S. or U.K., Canada continues to be dependent on heavy-handed lockdowns to keep cases low, adding more misery for Canadians. And that's where we are now. Yeah, so either either you can try to keep the virus completely out of your country, like some of the other small countries have done, massive testing. So if you look at Australia and New Zealand, huge number of tests per population, and they've been able to really isolate the disease uh, uh, well and contact tracing, that sort of thing. Once you get over a hump of having too many people in your population, so you get it towards an endemic state where the disease, the, the bug is everywhere. Now you have to take a different approach. And really the only way out of that is a massive vaccination program. But at the same time, we are locking down, not so much because of the disease itself, but because a system that we're supposed to be relying on doesn't have the capacity required to care for even a few extra hundred people getting sick. So we added 1,500 new ICU beds last year in Ontario. We peaked at um, 1,600 patients admitted to hospital in the peak of wave two, and uh, we only had uh, 400, 450 at the most in ICU. Now, our ICU numbers are going up, but we still haven't come anywhere near the 1,500 new beds. That's on top of the 2,400 beds, ICU beds, that existed before. So if we had all these people in one COVID hospital, it would not be full. 
Yeah, and I find that there are people who become very defensive if you challenge anything that's going on or is considered orthodoxy in Canada. They somehow feel that it's un-Canadian, that it's unfair. Well, I'll tell you what's unfair. Um, a young man who's on the opposite other side of the glass from me, who's in his early 20s and had a health issue, he uh, finds himself in a position where he could be immunocompromised, or will be for the rest of his life. He's not eligible for the vaccine. What's going on with that? Oh, yeah. The vaccine rollout itself, I think that data is going to come in later. Certainly when you have areas where 80-year-olds aren't getting the vaccine and other people under 20 in certain areas and demographics are getting the vaccine, that's going to create its own fiasco. But I think citizens are starting to get frustrated because the policy rollout doesn't make sense. So you have one store that has a small retail area but a large warehouse. So if you look at the total square feet, they could actually... 400 people in the store, but they never get more than 20 people. So even at a 25% capacity, they're still allowed to have 100 people. Well, if they had 100 people in the retail space, you'd be shoulder to shoulder. And yet they're allowed to stay open at 25% capacity. When another place closes, it just doesn't make sense. People are going to get, aren't going to get, they are frustrated. And these are their livelihoods we're talking about. Well, later on in the show, actually, the top of the next hour, we're going to be speaking to a restaurant owner who joined us some months ago who had uh, put so much money, his own investments and borrowed money, to build a restaurant with a 100-seat capacity and then found himself embroiled in COVID and the pandemic and the lockdowns and wasn't eligible for support because, government support, because it was a new business. So we're going to find out from him where he is now, and I've seen some of the information he wants to share with us, and people won't want to miss that. But this is the reality. So, uh, Dr. Watley, let's conclude with this. Um, I'm reading again from the release from MLI. As some countries edge closer to herd immunity from vaccines and loosen restrictions on civil liberties, their overall misery will drop significantly. Countries like Canada are forced to employ public health restrictions due to lagging vaccinations may continue to also see elevated excess death rates despite relatively low rates of infection. What, what, do you, what, what is it saying? Well, our death rate has gone up from people who don't have covid And that is truly tragic. So we have to start facing the fact that people are actually dying because of these lockdowns themselves. And again, we're going to have more data uh, coming in over the next six to nine months. But we already see a bump in excess mortality for the above 15-year age group. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be good neighbors. Wear your mask, wash your hands. Yeah, of course. But, But we need to do better. Quoting from Global News, appearing on Zoom from inside one of his two lawyers' Toronto homes, Cameron Gardner listened closely as Madam Justice Michelle First told the 59-year-old Collingwood man that after reassessing the case against Gardner and the reasonable prospect of conviction, both charges on the indictment were being withdrawn at the request of the Crown. A minute later, the father of two emerged from the house, declared his freedom, wiping away tears and hugging his lawyers. Quote, I have the greatest lawyers. They worked hard for me. <clears throat> Pardon me. And the outcome is I'm free. I'm relieved. It was a long road, said Gardner. On January 22nd, 2019, just after midnight, three masked men forced their way into Gardner's townhouse where he was watching a movie with his girlfriend. One was carrying a sawed-off shotgun. Uh, Mr. Elliot Wilstrick is uh, one of the lawyers for Mr. Gardner, and he joins us on the program. We were trying to contact... Uh, the other lawyer, but we're not able to get through. 
Uh, Elliot, thank you very much for the time. So could you pick up for us, please, where I just left off? What were the circumstances the night of the, do we call it a home invasion? It was a home invasion, okay. Roy. Uh, essentially, um, these three men had heard that Mr. Gardner's son was uh, a marijuana dealer. My understanding was that uh, it was well known throughout uh, Collingwood. And it's likely that one of the men who was facing sentencing the next day in Montreal was looking to make a quick buck, and they decided to uh, commit this home invasion on Cameron Gardner's house. Um, essentially, he was at home with his girlfriend at the time. They are watching a movie, and uh, he heard the doors starting to get broken down. Uh, he tried to hold it back. Um, he threatened that he had a bat. And unbeknownst to him, um, there were three masked men behind that door who got through uh, with their own shotgun. To his horror, one of them had a clown mask, uh, the other had a balaclava, and the other was just simply masked. And for a fairly lengthy period of time, um, they ransacked the home while they held Mr. Gardner and his girlfriend uh, at gunpoint. They tied them up. Mr. Gardner managed to loosen his zip ties, and his son, who had been watching um, remotely on video camera, decided to come and assist his father, um, and when he burst in, uh, he knocked one of the men down. And we're unclear as to the exact details, but uh, Cameron managed to get the gun, um, and he killed two of them. Um, the third one managed to get away, and uh, it went from there. So as I read um, the story, Elliot, Mr. Cameron thought that he would be perhaps uh, congratulated by the police, uh, and and instead uh, the, the police and the Crown laid charges, two secondary murder charges. Talk to us about that, and how did it get moved from secondary murder to a uh, charge to manslaughter? Yeah, well, certainly when he was arrested, he had no idea, first of all, he was going to be arrested. The police came, and he showed them where the bodies were, and uh, he was rather shocked when they said he was being arrested for second-degree murder. Um, he was also very confused while he was in custody, as I'm sure anyone can imagine that uh, the trauma of having gone through that um, would make one not necessarily of sound mind. So he was very traumatized throughout this entire uh, situation, but um, part of the legal process is that we were able to run a preliminary hearing. Uh, that's where we test the evidence and get to hear the evidence. And after um, hearing the evidence, uh, both Rob McDonald uh, and myself decided to contest committal, um, meaning that the Crown didn't have enough to get second degree. And fortunately, uh, we put together a very strong argument. And uh, Rob actually was the one who presented it to the judge, and the judge agreed and lowered it to manslaughter. Um, the test at the preliminary hearing is rather, um, it's about as thick as a fingernail. So it does a jury, or could a jury properly instruct on the evidence, make a finding of guilt? And certainly they could. Um, does that mean they will? No. But uh, we're very fortunate at least to have a very um, open-minded judge who uh, listened to our you know, very good arguments and, and lowered it. What was the fundamental of your argument? Self-defense right from the start. Uh, the moment I met Cameron, a lot of clients uh, will present stories to their lawyers that uh, paint them in a very sympathetic light. And uh, I remember hearing a story on the phone uh, I immediately went up to Central North uh, Correctional Center to meet him. And when I heard his story, um, I knew he actually was the real deal. Uh, he had just done nothing but defend himself. And uh, that was always going to be our argument. Um, the details of what happened in there um, we felt were important. But uh, I think where sort of the disconnect happened is um, the police couldn't figure out. He's, If you see Mr. Gardner, he's a very skinny guy. And... Uh, 
the two men that uh, he had fought with, one of them was a stuntman. Um, he had been a prize fighter. And the other was a sizable uh, means as well. And so I think some people got confused along the way as to how this happened. But our argument was always, it doesn't matter. Uh, when you have a home invasion, you get to defend yourself. So if I understand this correctly, uh, Mr. Gardner was held in pre-trial custody for a lengthy period of time, eight months? He was. Normally when you're charged with charges of this magnitude, it's extremely difficult to get bail. Um, he did not have uh, strong surety, as they say. And I know there's been a lot of press about bail being a revolving door for certain people. Um, Mr. Gardner found that uh, that revolving door for innocent people um, was essentially wired shut. So it took a while. Um, we had to do bail properly. Um, it took a while to get the disclosure. But his major disadvantage was he didn't have anyone who would come forward. Eventually, he had two close friends who came forward and were willing to accommodate him. But uh, it was an extremely difficult process. Is this over now, Elliot? Uh, it's over legally. Um, I don't know if it's over for Mr. Gardner. Uh, he lost absolutely everything he had uh, to the point where his teeth and glasses um, were in that place, and he wasn't able to collect anything. So it's over legally. Um, he's fortunate to have had the charges withdrawn. He no longer has the prospect of having perhaps a you know some weird jury in an alternate universe convict him, um, but we can never obviously guarantee him success, but uh, it is, in terms of the criminal charges, over. Do you feel, given what took place and the defense you put forward and the fact that the Crown uh, determined there was no reasonable chance of conviction, do you believe that Canada needs a, a castle doctrine or something similar where you have the right to defend your home, even to the, uh, to the extent that you're taking a home invader's life? The difficulty is that we do. Um, Section 34 of the Criminal Code is where self-defense is found, and there's a test that you need to go through, but I won't bore your listeners with that. Essentially, it's did you repel the force with a re, you know as much as possible in terms of um, retaliating. So, for example, if you punch me in the face and I shoot you, that's not quite right, but if you uh, threaten to shoot me and I shoot you back, well, then you're getting into a proportional uh, retaliation. The difficulty is... Um, the law is a human process. Um, people uh, can administer the law differently. And there were some questions, um, I think, based on what he had said immediately after he was arrested and just the fact that uh, they couldn't understand how such a skinny guy had overcome this. But uh, the bottom line is that he did. And uh, I think that was demonstrated. Well, justice was a very slow process, um, very painful for him. At the very least, justice was done in this case. What happened was that uh, Charlie Angus wrote uh, allegations to the RCMP, Canada Revenue Agency, uh, posted them, tweeted about them, and uh, that changed the dynamic because it, it uh, for charity, certainly, it meant that uh, what was going to be a simple exercise of answering questions now, you know, created all sorts of legal risk and uncertainty for the charity. That was uh, Guy Giorno, the lawyer, legal advisor, rather, legal advisor, not the lawyer for, but the legal advisor to We Charity on this program. He's the force of the former chief of staff to uh, Stephen Harper. When Mr. Harper was the prime minister of Canada, Mr. Giorno uh, challenging my next guest, NDP member of parliament, Charlie Angus, and uh, uh, Charlie's um, yeah, participation and uh, and actions and uh, challenges as a member of the Ethics Committee, the Parliamentary Ethics Committee, investigating we charities tie with the Trudeau family and uh, the Liberal government's involvement and particularly the uh, Liberal cabinet. 
And this has been such a such a unseemly situation. You know, we talk about ethics. Why are so many curveballs and spitballs being thrown in this particular game? Mr. Angus is with us on the Roy Green Show again. You're sort of my co-host now. <laughs> I think so, Roy. I'm. Uh... I want to get a want to get some kind of like advertising that I'm like co-hosting you're, the show with you. Well, you're getting all sorts of advertising. Yeah. <laughs> I keep mentioning you and writing about you, and but here we are, Charlie. Here we are. I mean, this has been going on, and I know you're going to want to respond to what you just heard me play back from Mr. Jordan. I'll give you obviously the opportunity to do that. Yeah. But here we are. This next, st- it's become a confusing timeline for people across this country. This ethics committee investigation into we Trudeau and the Liberal government. Can you just walk us through some of the? highlights or lowlights, whichever you prefer to term you prefer to use, through this whole process, which included a prorogation of Parliament, arguably. Well, I mean, Roy, I don't think we charity was on many people's radar. If we knew of them, we knew, you know, these images of these big youth rallies. Uh, maybe people had heard that we was a charity that had done work in Kenya. Maybe some of our kids or grandkids had raised money for them. But if you looked at them at all, you saw how closely uh, embedded they were with the Trudeau government, with Justin Trudeau from the get-go, from the, you know, uh, when he first ran for office. Uh, this is a, a charity, as Mr. Journo says, that is very involved politically. Uh, and when the pandemic hit, this was the charity that was able to call in to all the key cabinet ministers who had been invited to some of these we events and other uh, things that the, the Kielbergers do, and they would have walked out with between $500 million and a billion dollars in taxpayers' money to be administered by them and their group. And there was never any, to me, a real sense of whether due diligence was done. Well, didn't Mr. We Trudeau say, that, did, Charlie, Mr. Trudeau said clearly to told Canadians, this is the only charity capable of doing this work. Well, this was the uh, extraordinary thing that Mr. Trudeau said uh, when when this thing blew up in his face. Uh, but we never saw that they'd actually talked to any other charity. No other charity was 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 talked to. They mentioned Imagine Canada. They mentioned um, Spotify, Shopify. They mentioned uh, YMCA. None of those none of those companies were spoken to. The only ones from the get go were the Kielbergers. So that that makes that straight up. That's parliamentary investigation. How did these guys who had such close ties, who hired the prime minister's mother and wife, who went to England to do a big launch and brought the prime minister's mother, wife, and daughter? Um, how, how did how did these how did these guys get um, this inside track? That's that's the beginning of all this. And, and I don't, did I say that they hired his wife? No, they didn't hire the wife. They hired the mother and brother. I, I get I get mixed up by all those Trudeau connections to the Kielbergers sometimes. So Roy, that's. That's what begins the the scandal. And then we start trying to get answers on this, what Mr. Guy Journal is saying, this charity and the importance of their charitable work. And then we start getting into this quagmire of how many companies are there and holding companies and real estate holdings, and we're still not getting answers. So this has been um, one of the strangest parliamentary investigations I, I can remember. So where are we Now, Charlie, after another week of chaos, and I keep using that word, I hope I'm not being overstating. (laughs) Roy, chaos is a good term. So um, I I think it it has been a total curveball. So this has been now 
we were, uh, uh, the conservatives wanted to hear from three of the top liberal political staffers who were involved in this, Ben Chin, uh, Mr. Singh, and Rick Tyson, the prime minister's office. And the liberals have lost their minds. They say this is completely outrageous. This is without precedent. These are good, idealistic people who come forward to work for the Canadian people, and they shouldn't be dragged before a committee. Now, Roy, it's perfectly okay to bring civil servants before a committee, but you can't bring political staffers. I think that's a very ridiculous proposition. And I remember how mad Stephen Harper's people were when we dragged one of their political staffers before a committee, but it was a minority government. Uh, so the Liberals are now um, bringing ministers who say they don't know anything about the issues. Uh, they're accusing the Conservatives of playing games. We're getting nowhere on our committee. So, again, we're we're back into circus territory. We really need to get this report finished and get it to the Canadian, to, to Parliament, to Canadians. Some bad things went down with this deal. That's that's the simple uh, facts. Let's, now let's be able to lay out how it happened, and that's what I want us to get this parliamentary report finished. There was also a, a concerted effort made to get documentation uh, by the committee, and that was met by, by resistance and then redaction. Yes, well, we got the 5,000 pages of documents, uh, and there was a lot of redaction. I would disagree with Pierre Polyev because he said there wasn't anything in it. I actually read the documents, um, and there was a lot in there. And that's to me, laid out the picture. It laid out the meetings that went on that weren't registered under the Lobbying Act, the meetings with Vardis Chagger. She is a key player in this. Bill Morneau, uh, who you know went for the high jump, uh, a finance minister of a G7 country having to resign in the midst of a pandemic and the biggest economic crisis in the century is a scandal in its own right. But we even forget about Bill Morneau because we have so many other uh, scandals tied to this WE uh, scandal. So that's all in the documents. But yeah, they, they fought like heck. They prorogued Parliament. Now they're turning uh, the committee into a circus and sort of, I think, hinting almost as though it's going to be a confidence motion if we keep pushing. So how did you be, how did you become such a controversial figure in all of this? I mean, We Charity has uh, it's a web page which lists what is it the one hundred and one false statements made by Charlie Angus? Yeah, yeah, Roy. I mean, this is a charity again. Mister Guy Journal talks about this charity that has to protect themselves. That they hired. I mean, they hired Republican attack media machines. Uh, the the Israeli Times talks about an Israeli disinformation team that's done work. Uh, for them online. So you're thinking, well, what kind of charity is that? I'm obviously the lightning rod for them. I think that's, Roy, because uh, it's easy for we to sort of be mad at the conservatives because they're not the, you know, because conservatives versus liberals. I think me being a new Democrat uh, and being dogged and asking questions has made things very uncomfortable for them. What they're trying to blame is the fact that I did write to the RCMP after one of the witnesses, Reed Cowan, who was a big WE donor and a member of the WE board, came forward and, and, and said he thought there should be a police investigation. Well, okay, fair enough. It's not my job to say whether a police investigation will happen, but it's certainly within my job to pass that information on. So they use that as an excuse, I think, to try and avoid uh, coming forward, we're still not getting information on the finances. We're still uh, they're still squabbling about what they need to give us um, through the, ch- the chief financial officer. And Roy, if it's a charity and it's for kids, this should be all very transparent. 
Yeah. We should, they should be able to come and say, this is what we do. This is how the money flows. Here's all our books. This is how it's vetted. Straight story. We'd say, okay, thank you very much. Move on. The reason we're still on this is we still don't really have a clue of how this big financial machine with so much real estate holdings actually operates. And I think that that's concerning. And much of their uh, operation uh, closed down in Canada um, as part of this. You know, the, the, I, yeah, it seems... I paid attention. I mean, that one, that one got, got my attention. Yeah, I, I mean, they say on one hand that they were in perfectly good financial uh, form, but they're shutting the charity down and they're blaming the politicians. There also seems to be a major shift into the United States where there's a lot of big donors... Um, and so, again, we're not really sure what's up with these guys. They started in Canada. They uh, have a lot of real estate holdings. They could certainly sell some of their buildings off if they want to keep the charitable work going. But we, we never get the clear, simple answers. And it keeps coming back to this group, literally tied themselves to the Trudeau brand, uh, worked very closely and no, with senior liberal staff and and people trusted them because they were so embedded. And that's not how politics should work, Roy. We need in politics, it shouldn't be who you know in the PMO. You should, there has to be vetting, there has to be due diligence, there has to be a light shot on any kind of deals that are being made. And I think this we scandal keeps showing us that within in Ottawa, it's still, you know, there's still this issue of insider access, and that's not healthy for democracy. The Ethics Committee, now... Not so long ago, I interviewed Mary Dawson, who was the Parliamentary Ethics Commissioner at the time of the first investigation into Mr. Trudeau's ethics and behavior when he accepted two trips to the Bahamas uh, and spent time on the Aga Khan's private island. Here's just a few seconds of what Mary Dawson had to say about Mr. Trudeau and ethics. The Lavalin and the We, um, he felt he was doing good things, <laughs> and I think there just uh, seemed to be a little bit of a of a blindness uh, to the possibility that there was any kind of issue. So a bit of a blindness when it came to any kind of an issue, ethics. Now remember that uh, Mario Dawson did convict Mr. Trudeau of ethics violations, as did the current ethics commissioner. Um, Mario Dion, who was appointed by the Liberal government and in contravention with the Parliamentary Act, which requires the opposition parties to be involved in the selection of the conflict of interest and ethics commissioner. The opposition parties were never involved. The Liberals simply appointed Mr. Dion. Charlie Angus is a member of the Ethics Committee, Parliamentary, NDP member of Parliament for uh, Timmins James Bay. Do I have that correctly? Was all of that correct, Charlie? Uh, I think it's pretty correct, yes. Okay. Now, uh, but I, I bet the liberals are not happy with Mr. Dion now. I, uh, they grumble about him a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know where this is going. I'd like to see Mr. Dion make some more uh, public announcements on what he's doing, but we don't find out publicly what he's doing. Yeah, we will find out when it, when it comes out. Right. I mean, one of the things that I was hoping with these liberal staffers we were talking about, we could get an answer from Rick Tice, who is in the Prime Minister's office who had a 25-minute phone conversation with Craig Kielberger on May 5th. 
Uh, and the liberals at our committee were making it sound like that conversation was because Rick Tice was this nice guy. He just was listening to a whole bunch of ideas and and more than willing to help out him. He's the he's the the the, the, the chief operative for cabinet and this is three days before the Kielberger deal is going to cabinet there's no re- way he's just sitting around you know talking to Craig Kielberger about blue sky ideas this is about the program that's between 500 million and 900 million dollars and the reason I mentioned this Roy uh, because in the plan that was put given to given to the senior cabinet uh, by the Kielbergers is a proposal that has a photograph of the Prime Minister's mother and wife in it. And I find that really, really shocking because they're making it as clear as possible in this their connection to the Trudeau family, which I think, Roy, my reading of the Conflict of Interest Act, puts the Prime Minister in a real bind. If you're, if you're pitching a half-billion-dollar project and you're using the Prime Minister's wife and mother in the sales pitch, surely to God, someone... Uh, in the Prime Minister's office or someone in the Privy Council said, whoa, 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 Justin's already been busted twice for breaking the ethics laws. This is really not smart, guys. And I don't see anything in those 5,000 pages of documents, Roy, that anybody raised a red flag on that. And that's, I would like to get an answer from that from the political staffers who were around him. Didn't you guys think that was weird that they're using the Prime Minister's wife and mother to sell this project? (laughs) What's going on here? Charlie, how does uh, this end, and when does it end? Um, well, it depends on what the, what the Liberals do now at committee. Uh, they seem to be back into filibustering. Um, I think we need to get this report finished. We have some other very serious work we need to do. We have a big study into Pornhub, which is really, really concerning that I'd like to get finished. But, I, I you know, Roy, I've spent many years in opposition under the Harper government, under Paul Martin, uh, under Justin Trudeau. And there's a point when a new government comes in. I remember Stephen Harper came in. It was the Accountability Act. It was like making Parliament accountable to the Canadian people. And then you're in for, those guys are in for a few years, and then they really hate accountability. And you see that with Justin Trudeau, where they came in, uh, it was going to be uh, access to information, wide open government, fair government. Uh, and now they're really angry at the committees. They're shutting stuff down. And they've actually got a term they used last week. They talked about the tyranny of the majority against the, the, the rights of the minority. That's called parliament. Uh, normally, the tyranny of the majority is the government in power. But right now in a minority, they have to work with us. And they don't like it. Uh, I think if they could call an election and and make this all go away like they did with SNC-Lavalin, they'd do it in a second. But right now, uh, we got the feet to the fire. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.